Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby, a work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We are located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. Our phone number is 859-371-2095. You can also visit us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, that you may grow thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. I am Greg Littmer. I am one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. And today I'd like to talk to you about the life of a Christian. The life of a Christian is described in many different ways in the scripture. It can be called a pilgrimage, for in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, we find Peter warning, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. The point is that Christians are on a journey, a journey that began when we rendered our obedience to the gospel, and that will end when we get to go home to heaven with our Lord. Just as the Hebrew writer tells us that the patriarchs confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, that's Hebrews 11 and verse 13, so too we are just passing through. This world is not our home. The life of a Christian can also be described as a life of growth, growth that never ends. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. It would be a sad child indeed that never grows. Obviously, such a child would die. It is the same with the Christian. Remember what the Hebrew writer wrote in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. He wrote, For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. But of all of the different ways God's word describes our journey to heaven, perhaps two of my favorites are, I'll call it nonconformity and transformation. Let's look at Romans chapter 12, where we will read verses 1 and 2, focusing our attention primarily upon verse 2. Paul wrote, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's look at that phrase, be not conformed to this world. There is a sense in which every Christian is required by God to be a non-conformist. That non-conformity is what makes a Christian different from everyone else. It is the non-conformity that causes you and me to stand out. And when a person refuses to conform to the world and its standard, the world will reject him. 
Jesus told us that it would be so. In John 15 and verse 19, Jesus said, If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Peter told us the kind of reaction we can expect to receive in many instances over in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 4 when he wrote, Wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Christians are conforming to the world when we engage in worldly practices. If a Christian drinks socially because that is the common practice of the world, they are conforming. When we dress in an indecent, immodest manner, we are conforming to the world, and sometimes Christians don't even realize that they are dressing immodestly because they have become so conformed to the world. When we lie in business, call in sick when we are not sick, steal from the plant or the store where we work, cheat on taxes, gossip on the telephone, or a thousand other things because everyone else is doing it, Christians are conforming to the world. No, the life of a Christian must be a life of non-conformity. It is possible that someone may want to be a Christian and still conform to the world because they don't want to be hated or disliked or, for that matter, even be a little bit different. Someone else may want to remain conformed to the world because, quite frankly, he or she likes the things of the world. He or she loves to do those things that are done by the world. He or she loves to be what the world is. They want to do worldly things and don't want anyone telling them that it is wrong. The life of a Christian calls for nonconformity. God commanded in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15-17 through 17, the following. The Bible tells us, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that does the will of the Father abides forever. We cannot love the world or be conformed to it, because the life of a Christian is also a life of transformation. Back in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, we read, But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. My friends, this is such an interesting point. The word transformed is a verb that is translated from the Greek, which in biology has been brought into our language without translation. That is a process called transliteration. The word that is thus brought over into the English is metamorphosis. That helps us understand a little bit better what this change is all about. Think of a butterfly. You have the larva of an insect in the cocoon, which undergoes a change from an ugly, worm-like thing into a beautiful creature. For the insect, this is a change of the outward form, but not necessarily a change of the insect's brain. For the Christian, the change takes place from within. When that metamorphosis occurs, it will be manifested. It will be obvious in the life and activity of that child of God.
Understand that the Christian is not just reformed in the manner of life. A man who has served a sentence for a crime may come out reformed that way. He may never do it again because he got caught. But a Christian is reformed in his manner of life because he or she has been transformed within and doesn't want that manner of life anymore. I'm telling you, my friends, there should be an even greater difference between the old and the new man than exists between that ugly old worm that went into the cocoon and the beautiful butterfly that ultimately came out. It is by faith in God's word that the Christian has obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that makes him free from sin to become a servant of righteousness. And on that faith, which is a function of the mind, the Christian continues to build a beautiful life and a beautiful character. Look at how this life and character, as well as the continued process of it, the building of it, is described in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 4-7. through 7. Peter wrote, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity or love. This transformation, this metamorphosis comes about through the renewing of our minds. Sometimes the word mind is used in scripture just to talk about the intellect, the process of reasoning. But sometimes it is used to refer to the entire personality of the man. That is the way it is used in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 where Paul wrote, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. There it referred to Jesus' complete humbling of himself, his sublime humility and total implicit obedience. That's the renewal of the mind that Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. It is the renewing of the inward man. And how is it done? It is done through the word. Do you remember the explanation of the parable of the sower that the Lord gave in Luke 8? In verse 11, Jesus said, Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Now please come with me to 1 John chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. John wrote, He that commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. The point of this passage is not difficult at all. The Christian who allows the word of God to renew him continually, on a daily basis, will not continually practice sin. Oh, we all sin from time to time. But the Christian whose mind is being renewed day by day by continued study and application of the Word of God will not live in sin. My friends, there is another passage that in a most beautiful way describes this process of transformation, that it is what the day-to-day life of a Christian is all about, and I want us to go there now. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, reading verses 12 through verse 18. Here's what it says. 
Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded. For until this day remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as it is the glory of the Lord in the glass, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Where do you start as you try to explain this magnificent and incredible passage? First, I will try to give a general explanation, and then we'll focus on verse 18. Paul began this paragraph with the thought of Moses coming down from the Mount of Sinai when the glory upon his face was so bright that no one could gaze steadily at him. He thinks back to Exodus chapter 34. Let's go to Exodus chapter 34 and begin reading in verse 29 on down through verse 33. I'm going to be reading this from the New American Standard because it gives the meaning much more clearly. The passage says, And it came to pass, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of the testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses knew not that the skin of his face shone by reason of his speaking with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him. And Moses spake to them. And afterward all the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them in commandment all that Jehovah had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. If you have the King James Version, it appears that Moses put the veil on his face until he had finished speaking. But the correct idea is that he put the veil upon his face after he had finished speaking. Paul tells us that he did this so that the children of Israel would not have to see the slow fading of the glory that once was there. The idea is that the glory of that covenant, the old covenant of God, that he made with his people at Sinai was a fading one. Even as it was being given, it was destined to be done away. As we focus on that veil, Paul says that when the Jews listened to the reading of the old law, which they did every Sabbath day in the synagogue, a symbolic veil kept them from seeing the real meaning of it. It ought to have pointed them to Jesus, but the blindness of their hearts kept them from seeing that. However, the moment that the heart turns to Jesus, the removal of the veil begins. In Christ Jesus, and only in Christ Jesus, is their knowledge, understanding, and life. Look with me closely at verse 18. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. 
My friends, the word that is used for changed in verse 18 is the same word that is used for transformed in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. It's talking about the same metamorphosis, the same transformation, the same gradual and consistent transfiguration that comes about as a result of the daily renewing of our mind by and through the Word of God. But the really neat thing here is what we are changed into. Picture in your mind, if you will, a mirror. In the mirror is the image of Christ. And each one of us as individual Christians are looking into that mirror. Little by little, as we grow as Christians, as we feed upon the Word of God, as we let it dwell in us richly with all wisdom, we are transformed into the image of Christ that we see before us in the mirror. Now, obviously, the mirror is the Word of God, and what we are striving to be every day is like our Lord. Remember the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. He wrote, For even here unto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Remember again the words of Paul that we looked at earlier in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This change we're talking about here is a gradual, progressive change. It is from glory to glory. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we read the following. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. My friends, we are privileged to behold the glory of Christ, which is the very brightness of the glory of God, as we read and study the Gospels. As we mature and become more and more like Jesus, we reflect that glory and the image becomes more and more the same. Ultimately, the Lord is going to return, and when he does, and we get to go home with him, then the image will be the same. John wrote in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, Beloved, now we are, are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Let's close this episode, a lesson about what we can and should be with the words of the song, O to be like thee. The song goes this way, O to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, this is my constant longing and prayer. Gladly I'll forfeit all of earth's treasures, Jesus thy perfect likeness to wear. O to be like thee, full of compassion, loving, forgiving, tender, and kind, helping the helpless, cheering the fainting, seeking the wandering sinner to find. O oh, to be like thee, lowly in spirit, holy and harmless, patient and brave, meekly enduring cruel reproaches, 
willing to suffer others to save. Oh, to be like thee, Lord, I am coming, now to receive the anointing divine. All that I am and have I am bringing, Lord, from this moment all shall be thine. Oh, to be like thee, oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, pure as thou art. Come in thy sweetness, come in thy fullness, stamp thine own image deep on my heart. Words to consider. Thanks for listening.